Hello, and welcome to the Victory Podcast. I'm your host, Monique Watson. On this episode, I sat down with my cousin, Lee Kuntz, who is the president and artistic director for Gateway's Music Festival. On this episode, we talked about how we know each other, his professional background, a bit about getting into the world of art administration, as well as we uh, delved into a number of hot topics that weren't necessarily on our outline, but were really good points of discussion. Politics, to creating safe spaces for people um, of African descent, and just a whole host of other topics. Really great episode, so I hope you enjoy it. All right, so welcome to the Victory Podcast, and I'm your host, Monique Watson, and I have the wonderful pleasure this time to have a a friend and family member of mine, uh, Mr. Lee Kuntz. How are you doing, Lee? I'm terrific, Monique. How are you? Good, good. Uh, Good. So far, listeners, we'll uh, talk a bit with Lee. He's going to give us a little bit about his background, and we'll talk about a couple of different topics about the world of arts and performance and is his work with Gateway's Music Festival and sort of why that's important. And uh, um, it's going to be really exciting. So um, thanks again, Lee, for sitting down with us today. My pleasure. Looking forward to it. Awesome. So maybe for the listeners, let's uh, give them a bit of background about how we know each other. I did allude to it. <laughs> that we are family members um, and a little bit about yourself. Sure, that we are. We are definitely family members. Um, your mother... Um, and I are first cousins. So um, our parents were brother and sister, uh, brothers and sisters. And so you and I, I guess, I guess they call it first cousin once removed or something like that. I think so. <laughs> I was telling my mother, I talked to her this morning and I was like, okay, whoever came up with these naming conventions for the cousins oh, I thing, I, I just, I think it's, I don't agree with it. And I think it's stupid. <laughs> I think we should be second cousins. I just think, feel like the next generation, but I know it's right. like, same it's parent, really blah, complicated, blah, 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 blah. exactly. And the first cousin line remains first cousin line, I think, forever. So I don't know it's so weird. H- have you done Ancestry.com and the DNA I have, testing? I have not, but Nicole did. So I feel like we okay. share the same gen- DNA. So that was enough for me. But but yeah. you'd be surprised though, because yeah, I learned that um, we all inherit fifty percent of our mother's genes and fifty percent of our father's genes, but they can be a different fifty percent. Right. Right. It's not the same 50 percent. And what I found fascinating about the DNA um, testing, which I did a couple of years ago, is that. And you don't they don't tell you this, you don't. I didn't know this until much later. They give you your first cousins, second cousins. Yeah. But also third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth. As deep as they can go. Wow. And so you, you see this this chart with hundreds of people that you are related to. That you had no idea that you were related to. Wow. It's extraordinary. So I would say it's worth doing the test just for that. I might have to check it out. Yeah, <laughs> it's really amazing. So cousins. Yeah, cousins. And uh, yeah, absolutely. I've, I've known you for a long time long in my time. life. Most of my, <laughs> most of my conscious mind, right? Like of, of ages and all the different like family reunions and stuff yeah. we've had over the years. Yeah. Um, and maybe we give a little context for folks about your professional background. So besides just being the fabulous cousin of the host. <laughs> well, I am currently the president and artistic director of a music festival called the Gateways Music Festival. Um, and I can tell you more about that later. Um, I'm trained as a pianist, as a classical pianist. 
and um, uh, attended uh, undergraduate graduate school in piano performance and um, spent a lot of my life performing and um, a lot of my life as an arts administrator. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, we will talk more about that. So let's let's get into the meat of it a bit. Okay. So how did you get into like what draw you to whether it's piano or fine arts? Like what kind of brought you into that world? Was it just listening to things and you're like, oh, I want to do that or sort of what what got you there? Yeah, well, you know, we were um, actually born in Ohio, like most of our family um you know, your, your mom, I think, too, was born in, in Xenia, and I was born in Xenia, Ohio. But we moved to Chicago when I was three years old. So, you know, that was really my home um, and the home that I kind of grew up in and the home that I know. And um, my father was um, the minister of a church, um, and we lived in this really enormous uh, apartment complex called um, Parkway Gardens, uh, which it turns out that's where uh, Michelle Obama's grandparents lived too. So we might have been there at the same time. Who knows? Okay. In fact, I'm okay. sure we were. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but it was this awesome. enormous, and I didn't know that until I just read her book, um, Becoming, a couple couple months ago. But my father was a minister at the church at one end, Parkway Gardens Christian Church, and my mother worked at the school on the other end, John Foster Dulles. And um, our whole lives kind of revolved around that that community, that neighborhood, that enormous community, because there were, I don't know, 50 something apartment buildings. Some were like high rises, some were low rises, like ours was a three story one. And um, so my father came up with this idea that it would be great to have a pianist in the family, somebody who could play piano at church whenever he needed somebody. <laughs> even though they had, you know, paid musicians there and all that other kind of stuff. But, you know, just to have somebody on call, just in case you need anybody. <laughs> <laughs> so he thought, well, I think my, I think my daughter should play the piano. Um, and, but he knew that and my sister, Julie is 10 months younger than me. He knew that it would probably be difficult to get her to do it. So he said, well, she'll do anything that Lee does. So he, she's, he started, my mother and father started me on piano in order to get Julie to play the piano. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, you know, when parents use psychology like that, it always backfires. So mm-hmm. Julie really hated it and I loved it. Um, and I think it suits my personality. I'm more of an introvert. Julie's definitely an extrovert. Um, <laughs> definitely. And so I, she's definitely an extrovert. And I can spend hours alone by myself practicing or reading. And that really was conducive to learning how to play the piano. So that's kind of how I started. Wow. I had no idea. Um, (laughs) So you start in the piano, become a beautifully classically trained pianist and and start start off, as you mentioned, in the performance world. Um, But what sort of, why why not stick in the performance world? What kind of drew you to from performance to kind of artistic administration? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like most things in life, nothing's a, uh, you know, straight, clear path. And I don't think hmm. I certainly planned it all out. But um, so after going to, I went to the Oberlin Conservatory of Music in Ohio for undergrad. And then I went to the Eastman School of Music for a master's in piano. And I moved back home to Chicago 
And, you know, I was freelancing and I had a job with the Catholic Archdiocese of Chicago as a music director and playing, accompanying a lot of recitals and just, just having a great musical life. Um, and then I got my first, um, you know, loan, school loan bill. <laughs> um, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I got to find a way to pay this thing. And, and you know, all the freelancing and stuff, it's not going to do it. And mind you, it was about $3,000. And this was from undergraduate and graduate. But it seemed like a fortune to me then. And when I was in grad school, I had the great experience of working at Eastman Kodak. And I won't go into all that, but um, over the summer. And I became kind of this Macintosh expert um, in the early days of the Macintosh. And so I saw this job advertised um, in Chicago at this company called Arthur Anderson. It's actually called Anderson Consulting, the division of Arthur Anderson at that point, for somebody who was a, a desktop publisher, they called it back then. I applied for the job. It was a three-month job. And I thought, this is great. I'll just take this job to pay off my $3,000 school loans and be done. Well, 10 years later, I was still there at Anderson Consulting, um, which is now Accenture, um, which is the largest consulting firm in the world. Um, I was a senior manager um, with a couple departments and um, tons of responsibility and still playing on the side and everything, you know, in the evenings and the weekends and stuff like that. But I had this life in, um, in, in a, at a huge consulting firm that grew from, you know, like 500 employees to I think the firm is now like 300,000 employees. Wow. So it was a place and a job that suited me. And um, at one point I decided, okay, it's time for me to really get back to music after 10 years of being at, at um, Anderson Consulting. And I thought, well, what if I found a job that could combine my musical background and my administrative background? And I became um, then the director of community relations um, at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And so that was my beginning um, into um, arts administration finding a way that could encompass my musical interest along with my business interest. Yeah, that that's awesome. So um, tips for other now, now that you've kind of been in the art administration space for, for a bit, is there, is there some things that you think if, if someone thinks I want to do art administration, I really like, you know, the kind of the business side of it, would you tell, them looking back at uh, what would be some tips or, or things in that space for them? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And because I, I don't think that there is a, you know, a set path. You know, a lot of people go into arts administration from the world of performance. They've been performers. They've been trained as musicians themselves or artists themselves or one other or dancers. And they go into arts administration. And some people come from it completely out of the blue. Um, you know, there is, for example, the president of a really um, prominent, well-known, enormous music school in uh, Minneapolis who doesn't have an arts background, but he runs this amazing institution. Um, of course, he's an arts lover. He loves music. He loves dance, all those things. 
but he that's not his background. He came from the business world. And I think that um, the arts and arts administration need strong um, finance support. They need strong administrative support. They need strong technology support. And those are things that are translatable from many different fields. So if you love the arts, but you don't have an arts background, you can still go into arts administration because there's so such a great need for those kind of skill sets within the arts. Awesome. Awesome. So tell us about Gateways Music Festival um, and why is it so important? It's pretty unique, I think, in, in some ways, as far as the, the kind of bounds of it. Uh, maybe you can tell us a bit more for our listeners. Yeah, it is unique. Um, it's really the only organization of its type. It is a 27-year-old now um, classical music festival. Same age as you, 27. Oh there my you gosh. go. Times <laughs> three almost. <laughs> no, not times three. <laughs> not no, quite. not quite. Not quite. <laughs> um, it is a music festival for Black professional um, classical musicians. Um, and our, our mission is to connect and support um, professional classical musicians of African descent and um, enlighten and inspire communities through the power of performance. Um, and so Gateways Music Festival, which is becoming kind of a, a year long program, um, has been uh, a one week festival, six, seven days in the summer, um, where we invite 125 black uh, professional classical musicians from around the country, but some also from other parts of the world, to Rochester, New York, for more than 50 concerts um, during that six, seven days. So we have orchestra concerts, we have recitals, we have chamber music concerts, we have a film series, we have panel discussions. Um, and, you know, the mission is to connect and support these musicians and, you know, last year we invited 125, but we had about 200 that we had to turn away that were interested, but we could not accommodate. And Gateways is important for a lot of reasons. You know, one is that um, certainly most black musicians, if not no, all black musicians, classical musicians, live in a world in which they are one of the only ones or one of only a few. Um, so if you play in the New York Philharmonic, for instance, there's one black player in the New York Philharmonic. Out of the, how many? A hundred. Well, on average. hundred and ten or so. Odd. Yep, hundred and something. Mm. If you play in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, there's one black player out of 100 and something musicians. Um, if you teach on the faculty of a, of a, of a major music school, you're a handful. So to come to gateways where there are all these people who look like you, who have the same life experience as you, um, it's profound for them, mm -hmm. profound, and play at a very high level. Mm -hmm. So the musicians, you know, flock to gateways. They want to be a part of it because it is one of the few places in their lives where it can really be about the music because it doesn't have to be about race. Mm. And so our, our mission is not about diversity. Our mission is not about race. Our mission is to just bring together and support this group of musicians. Um, so I think it's important for that. It's also important because we want 
our communities and other communities to see that there are no boundaries for Black people. We can excel at hip hop. We can excel at reggae. We can excel at um, country and Western. We can, <laughs> <laughs> we can excel at classical. There, and so for a little Black kid in particular to see that, wait a minute, there are no boundaries. I can be anything. I can do whatever I want musically, just like I can play golf or tennis, basketball, football. So Gateways is this you know, visual representation of the possibilities for Black people. And that's why I think it's important. Absolutely. Oh, man. It just it actually reminds me um, as I've, you know, one been following it um, since you've become a part of it and and I became aware of it. Um, It reminds me as far as its mission and intent is sort of like the HBCU experience Mm -hmm. Um, as a as a proud Howard University alumni, the same university, to be clear, that Madam Vice President (laughs) Kamala Harris attended. That's the only way you you can introduce Howard. <laughs> That's the only way you can use Howard now is you have to include Madam Vice President Absolutely. Kamala Harris. Absolutely. Um, but anyway, claim it. <laughs> claim. Oh, we're just all Howard alums are going to be just I know. disgusting for the next four years plus. No, just no you're never going to be right ridiculous. again, ever. <laughs> never. We were already um, feeling, you know, as the Black Harvard, as they say, yeah. already had that. That just foolishness about us. It's not. It's gonna get that much worse for the next four years. Exactly. Oh, I'm sure. So, uh, worse by worse, I mean absolutely fabulous for us. Absolutely. Um, but yes. Um, but it does remind me. I think back on my Howard experience. Mm-hmm. That was the thing because I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast. I got into. I got priority waitlisted at Carnegie Mellon. I got into Xavier, but I didn't want to stay home in New Orleans. Um, and then I also got into Howard. So, and I, on the same trip, I went to go visit Carnegie Mellon. I went to go visit Howard and I went to Carnegie Mellon and I was just like, I don't know. There was a black person that I saw. There was, I mean, it just felt very intense. Mm -hmm. Um, and not that that's a bad thing. It's a, fantastic institution. Uh, Carnegie Mellon produced both my parents went there, all of that good stuff. But then I went to Howard and there was just, it was an experience because I had grown up in, in New Orleans in a majority black city, but my, my high school experience was in an all girls Catholic school, which Mm. had more diversity than others. We probably were about 20% in the population, which was better than some schools, another school in the same city. Um, that one of my friends went through, and I think their classes were double the size. So we had like 100 people in my graduating class. This other institution down the road had about 200 people. We probably had about 20 African-Americans and another like 10 miscellaneous mixture mm-hmm. of different other minorities. So good, deep, decent rest representation. But this other, like friends of mine that went to another school um, had probably 200 people in their cl- graduating class. Um, and there were three black people. I knew two of the three <laughs> black people that went to that school. So super small, but it was just a nice experience. Even with all that representation and everything, it was just such an amazing sort of homecoming. As soon as you walk in and you just look around and like, 
everyone looks like me. And that's not an experience that you get very often in situations and, you know, in the world we live in. And, and they're especially smart. And, and they're, they're smart. They're smart. And they and know their stuff. Exactly. And they're, and they're exactly. beautiful. And they're not they're fitting, beautiful. you know. That's they're, right. They're, and, they're, and, and even stuff like people wearing their hair naturally was that's like right. so much and more. And nobody of a, coming like, up and touching it. And nobody wants to touch it. <laughs> nobody wants, no, like I had to explain. I, I think I like oh, I'm on gosh. the DEI team, diversity, equity, inclusion team at work. And just one thing that jokingly I was talking about with somebody just because so we're talking about hair. One of my friends got their hair cut. I was like, oh, that's cute. And whatever. They didn't try to touch my hair, never that at work. But it's just like a hair discussion, trying to explain the black hair experience is mm-hmm. totally different. But not having to do that where you just have people. Right. And and some people are wearing their hair naturally. Some people are wearing weaves, mm-hmm. wigs, straight, perm. It's like all the gamut, all the things. And it was just such a, this is what I wanted out of, out of my college experience that I didn't even know that I wanted. Because I honestly hadn't really... Honestly, I hadn't really looked at Howard too deeply. I had a lot of family members, as you know, my grandfather, yeah. your your uncle, yeah. um, went to Howard. Um, a lot of family members. My uh, my uncle on my dad's side went to Howard. Um, so I, I knew of Howard, a cousin of his. People have gone to Howard. It's not that I had any like disrespect to the institution or anything. I just was kind of like, I don't know. Sure. Okay. DC area. Cool. I'll apply. Mm-hmm. Whatevs. Mm-hmm. And then when I when I went there, and it's probably the same experience to others maybe listening to this who've been to whether it be Howard or other HBCU sort of environment. It's just a home feeling or gateways in your example. Mm-hmm. It's just a place where you just feel like whew, the peace of not having to. There's such a challenge, and I experience this sometimes in the corporate setting too. Is when you're the only one mm-hmm. or one of a f- sprinkling. It's really like, okay. It's a different, you You now then, unfortunately or fortunately, represent all Black people to them, and then for better or for worse, and then there's this, this pressure of being like the only one. You're like, okay, now I, I'm it. There's no one to kind of have that, that has that culture experience. But yeah, so an, an opportunity like Gateways or going to an HBCU presents that, I can exhale and I can like it can be about just the work. It can just be about right. the the classroom. Or it, it can, can just be, be about, about the music. music. That's right. And and a couple of things. I mean, you said so many incredible things. Um, but um, every day, you know, in the world in which we live, um, we deal with the microaggressions. We deal with all of these issues that surround us on a daily basis. Um, you know, my my partner and I, for instance, um, we just got a dog back in February of last year. And, um, you know, we have to walk the dog three or four times a day. And um, sometimes we walk the dog together and we were walking the dog together a couple of nights ago um, for a late night walk. And he walks across the grass of uh, some private property around our house. Um, it's actually a, a big house that's got a real estate office in it. So he cuts across their grass. And now the dog has gotten used to cutting across that grass. And so he likes to cut across that grass because it's this huge lawn, huge, huge area. And whenever I take the dog out on a walk, he wants to go that way too across that grass. And I told my partner I said, well, you, 
it's uncomfortable for me to walk Emo, our dog, across this lawn. And he says, well, why? I said, you know, you're a white man in America walking across somebody's private property at night. I'm a black man in America walking across somebody's private property at night. Mm-hmm. You think about the situation. Take what a second and pause. Yeah. Pause. So, but I think it's something that is part of white privilege. You know, it's not something that ever has to cross their mind. Their mind. Um, mm-hmm. And another instance, you know, our across the street neighbor, lovely couple, lovely family. Uh, and the, the uh, husband is a retired uh, mechanic, owned a big mechanic car repair shop here in our community and i have this vintage mercedes 1970s mercedes so i invited him over to give me some advice on it and it's been my dream car since i was 10 so um and he was giving me some advice and so we sat around talking and stuff and we had a really interesting conversation this is pre-election and um he said well you know um you know black people can be racist too and I thought, okay, here we go. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> go okay, let me step back. <laughs> exactly. Let me step back here a minute. Um, but it was a good day for me. And so instead of going crazy, I said, <laughs> John, what do you mean by that? Um, he says, well, you know, when I was a young man, I was working at a, another shop and I had a, a guy worked with us, a black friend, and he took me to a bar that he hung out in. It was, you know, all black bar. And I walked in. And everybody looked at me um, and they looked so mad and so mean. You know, he's a tall white guy and this is a black bar. And he took that to mean that they must be racist. And so I said, well, John, maybe there's another explanation here. Um, Could it be that this group of people um, felt that someone had just invaded their safe space? That the place that they go to to relax and don't have to worry about someone, a cop putting his knee on their neck and suffocating them, or being dragged out and hung by a tree if you're in the South, could it be that this was just the place where they felt safe? And I think that that's so true of places like Howard, places like Gateways, where there are places of safety for us. He was quiet. For the longest amount of time, it was a really uncomfortable <laughs> quiet. <laughs> and, you know, he's 70 something years old and he looked and this happened to him probably in his 20s. And he had held this belief that black people can be racist, too, for 50 something years. And he said to me, I've never thought about that. He's never had to. Exactly. That's part of the white privilege, right? You don't yeah. have to think about it. You don't have like to. That. Just to go to your knee on the neck example. Yeah. They don't have to have those conversations. No. I don't With have children kids. yet, but I plan to. And those are the things of those conversations that Absolutely. you have to have at early ages. Absolutely. You have to start having that conversation at like five years old. I know. That's right. And say, you can't play with the fake gun like your friends, you know, That's right. of a different shade can. On the streets, you just can't, and it's not—it's not fair. Mm-hmm. It's the size, and you have to have the conversations at like ten and twelve. That's right. Again, and you have to have a different conversation when they're like fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, and about start to drive driving and understand right. 
your only response is yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. I don't care what they do say. And even or, then it may not be enough. It may not be enough, but that's at least the starting point. Exactly. Do what that's you right. need to do that's right. to get home safe. Exactly. We'll deal with the suing and the badge numbers mm-hmm. and go in if injustices and all that. Mm-hmm. The only just get those home th- safe. St- just get do everything in your power to get home safe. And that's not a conversation. Talking to family members of people who I know who have kids, it's not conversations they need to ever have. Nope. Ever. Nope. There's not the same fear when, even if you know you're speeding and you're like, okay, that's why they're peeling, peeling me over. Mm-hmm. I was speeding. Just the lights, those red that's and blue right. lights in the rear view mirror. Every, yes. And I can speak to the black experience because it's the only one I've had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is, is fear that clenches up. Regardless of of what, like, I've done nothing wrong. Maybe I've sped. That's the most I've done. I'm not like, you know, I have no reason to be fearful, but I just am because, because experience both in my society and my experience from other people has, has ingrained in me this innate fear and been further validated from example after example, after example, after example. Yep. There's a, there's a, um, video that was kind of going around a year or two ago of a white woman driving and she'd been pulled over by a cop and um, she had her phone out and she was just terrified she's shaking and she was recording the thing because this is what you know she thought people had to do you have to record instances of police whatever she was recording now she's a white woman and the cop is white and um he asked for her, you know, driver's license and registration. And so she's going, she's shaking and she's reaching over to open her glove compartment. And the policeman asked her, so why are you, why are you so nervous, ma'am? Because, you know, he probably thought maybe she's got drugs. And she says, well, you might, I'm, I'm afraid that you might shoot me. And he says, well, no, we only shoot black people. It's recorded. He actually said, we, oh, no, we only shoot black people. Yeah. Tell me it's not real. It, this is <laughs> it's the thing. Real. <laughs> and and it's it's very interesting to me because I remember um sort of some of those conversations of when when these incidents happens, whether it's the George Floyds or the, mm-hmm. the countless other names when situations like that occur. Um working in an environment where you're surrounded by white people, especially when I lived in Canada in, in twenty fifteen and stuff, and they had other different things that came up and their surprise and shock around it that these things are happening. And I said, these things have been happening for centuries. That's right. The The difference now is that everyone has a phone and everyone has a camera to videotape it. That's exactly right. And so the idea of these isolated incidents are no longer, right? That's right. And that they must have been doing X because that would be the only reason to validate in their own mind right. to do why right. to, to shoot, put your knee on your neck, yep. blow up a spot when someone's doing nothing but sleeping in their bed at night because yep. you thought you were at the right place. Yes. So. And, and getting, you know, nobody deserves to be killed for running the stoplight. No. Nobody. Nobody. Um, yeah. It, it's, it's, and no, he deserves that, to be killed for selling loose cigarettes. That's absolutely not, a, not. Absolutely not. That's right. No. And I think that we've known this for centuries because this has been going on for that long. 
And part of my part of the anger I have is that so many people are just kind of waking up, which has been part of the privilege that they've had. Um, they haven't had to realize that it's true. Um, and there's this other thing that among many white people um, that, well, if it doesn't happen to me, if it's not my experience, it must not be true. Yes, that is an actual thing. That is, is so is mind blowing. It's mind blowing. Um, it, <laughs> anyway, so it, it, I think that this is a, a moment for our country, and I'm glad that we're in this moment. And it also makes me think that maybe we needed a presidency like Donald Trump and this insanity that's going on right now because it taught us how much we have to lose and how important it is for us to fight. Um, together, this insanity that this group of folks who are misogynist, who are racist, who are homophobic, who are <laughs> Islamophobic. All the is, all, all the bad things. All of it. All of it. This is not who um, this country says that it is. This is not who our founding documents say who we are. It's not who, who we, we are so be. proud of being, right? Um it's been fr so maybe we had to go through this in order to get to a different place. Yeah, I, I said the same thing to I think I was on a interview the other day talking about the inauguration. It was earlier before the inauguration ceremony started. Um, I said, I thank Donald Trump for this one thing to, to two things to illuminate people who believe in this way, because you found out that one of two things were true. Either people who supported him fall in one of two camps. Either you are racist, misogynist, homophobic, insert yep. awful yeah, yeah, thing here, yeah. or that is not a deal breaker for you. And I think I, I respect people more who are the racist, homophobic, and whatever, because that's what you believe. And, and, and this is America and you are entitled to believe that. And I don't have to like it either. Mm -hmm. And you can go in your little corner and whatever. <laughs> um, but my bigger problem is that's not a deal breaker for you audience, right? Cause those are the people that probably sit next to you and, and sit in meetings and all the things because, but it wasn't a deal breaker for them. That's my problem as that audience have been now shown, shown true and you know who they are. And we now, you know, I forget who said it, but it was like when someone, I think it might have been Maya Angelou, if someone shows you who they are, believe, believe them. That's right. And Donald and, Trump and has shown us who he was since the Central Park 7, since the whole birther movement. He's shown yeah. us who he is. He's shown that's, us. Yes. You know, yes. Um, you know there was a, a, a show on NPR a couple of weeks ago, um, and the commentator asked the you know, the expert who was on, he says, well, do you think we're headed for a second civil war? And he paused for a second and he says, well, no, I don't think we're headed for a second war because we never finished the first one. That's the story <laughs> because that's the Confederate flag crap going on in the South. That's the Confederate statues. That's all that insanity. We never finished the first one. And I think that all of this stuff has, has, has boiled up and boiled over from over a hundred years. This is nothing new. It is really this is not new. new. Nothing new. And and folks who your your point about that group of folks who support him, um, despite his isms, <laughs> um, and 
phobias and all of that, you know, because they think, well, okay, um, I'm I'm a um, pro pro lifer. Well, I'm going to support this man who is despicable, despicable in every way. I'm going to support him just because he's going to support. Are you kidding me? If that's what you believe, find somebody better than that to to support. Yeah, <laughs> my thing even. That. I think even like, so I don't know, I struggle with that as the pro-lifers and, and these, and I even struggle as, as a person who used to call myself a Christian, even I've, I've now switched to follower of Christ because these air quotes for the audio podcast, evangelical Christian Christians have, have hijacked that, that auspice yes, yes, and converted it in a way to, to fit their own um, biases and, you know, yeah. racism and all these things to support that view. So I have even, I've, I've switched out of just Christian follower of Christ. That was sort of the original um, sort of thing. But anyway. Um, Many of them are not followers of Christ because they're what they're believing and purporting are not yes. teachings of Jesus Christ. That's where I was going with it. Absolutely. That's if right. You, but they've co-opted the term Christian. Correct. <laughs> taken it. But if like the things that fall like have you read That's the right. gospel? Have That's can we right. look at the gospel? That's right. That's right. God was all about the others That's right. of, of society, the, the marginalized, the right. least of these. You know, the, the parables of the one after the 99, going after the one. These don't fit your ideals. No. And like, no. And, and the pro-life stance, this is my, this is my sitting as a Christian. My personal mm-hmm. opinion is one thing. The idea of pro-choice is Absolutely. that there is an option for others Absolutely. and that there's a safe way. Those things, the thing pre, pre-Roe v. Wade is not that abortions never happened. Mm-hmm. Let's be clear. They did. That's right. They happened. And people who have money will continue Absolutely. in a post if no they get rid what. of Roe v. Wade, no matter what, to have access to abortions. And making those choices early, early. And there is no late-term abortion if you talk to actual like medical mm-hmm. doctors. It's just mm-hmm. in, inducing labor. Mm-hmm. So this this mythological late-term abortion foolishness yes. is not yes. it. Anyway, but so if you're actually pro, like peep, God gave us free will. Mm-hmm. So isn't that pr- pro-choice? Yeah. The option, giving the people the option, the tools and the safe space to make decisions with their own body is the ultimate free will expression. So I just don't, I can't rationalize that. And the disconnect between, you know, the pro-life stance and capital punishment. Okay. So I believe in life here, but not there. There's, there's, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's nonsensical. And I think, you know, nobody I know is pro-abortion. No, (laughs) nobody. We are pro-choice. It is the choice that you have to make for your family, for your body. And you deserve to have that choice. And they want to take that choice away. Um, the whole co-opting of Christianity is a big deal for me because there's there's this thing that um, I remember when I was at a, another job, one of the parents of the students came in and said, well, I'm a Christian. Me, And in his mind, that meant this this very rigid set of things. And I said, well, I'm a Christian too, but I don't believe exactly the way that you believe. But they have this very, if it's, if it's not their way, 
you're not a Christian. But mm-hmm. here's what here's something that I read that Gandhi said, and I used to have it hanging on the wall of my little office at home. It, he said, I like, this is Mahatma Gandhi, I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. Facts. There it is. Well, there it is. I, and I get and into I, this discussion. Let me just, can I say I would say that yeah. even too for, for progressive Christians, we have a long way to go too to be more Christ like, right? Correct. But Gandhi hit the nail on the head. He's is exactly what you just said. Exactly yeah. what you just said. Yeah. Yeah, I think and then I think we'll we'll move well, no, we'll keep it talking. It's whatever. <laughs> um no, one thing one thing around that is that when I get into discussions, I'm a person, I go to church regularly. I do a lot more so from the community outreach and that sense of community that I get from going to church. But I have, even even my own husband has struggles with the idea of religion. And I have not been a person to try and be like, well, you need, and that was part of what he he, he tells us so I can take credit for it. Um, why he's loved me because I'm not like this kind of Bible thumping you need to be. If you're not in, in some church, then you're, you know, out of order and da, 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 because I grew up in a church that really focused on, it is not about the religion. It's about the relationship. And if you don't have, and like, it's about having that relationship and communion with God. If you find that in a church setting, cool. If that's not for you, cool, because the religion and these man-made rules and sort of these man-made structures around what was the base core of the Bible and sort of the the spirit and, and intent of of Christianity? Mm-hmm. That's those are two different things. So I have no problem when people are like, "I hate church." I said sometimes I do too um, because <laughs> exactly. it's full of people and people yeah. are flawed. We're imperfect, yeah. right? Um, so it's totally understandable when people have, I, I, it's, it's a different thing. It's not about the religion. And that's one thing it's about the relationship. And if you don't have a true relation, because if you have a true relationship with God, you know, that God is not the author of confusion. So all this foolishness on, on uh, January 6th, that ain't it. Um, not God like, um, he's comes from a place of love. Um, you know, the greatest of these things is love, love for thy neighbor. Yep. Yep. That's everybody in the neighborhood, the global neighborhood. Yep. Yep. So anyway. And we, we grew up um, in a really, not that I don't think my sister, well, I don't know, in a very progressive denomination. And, um, you know, as I got older, I even went to a more progressive denomination, you know, the United Church of Christ, the Congregationalist. Um, and, you know, the Episcopal Church is also very, pro- most of them are very progressive. Um, but there's this sense that there's just one way of being a Christian um, for that kind of conservative right. And that is so incredibly, um, it's just insulting to me. It just is insulting. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. <sighs> but. Yikes. <laughs> that's a big yikes. topic. It was, <laughs> no, that it's a deep topic, but yeah. it, I think an important one and definitely. Um, but the idea of creating safe spaces, though, to bring us sort of back to where we started this sort of conversation, I think is so critically important. So the work you all do at Gateways is amazing. And um, Thank you. Thank you. and 
I guess how how long have you been at Gateways now? Well, that's you know um, complicated story. I joined the board of Gateways in 1995 when I was oh director of community relations at the Chicago Symphony. Um, Should I tell you how young I was at 1995? I, were you even born then? <laughs> I was born. I was less than 10, I'll tell you that. Yeah. I was yep. eight years old, depending seven or eight, depending on what time in that year. So I was working at the Chicago Symphony, as I said before, in community relations. And we brought a group of Gateways musicians to Chicago, and I joined the board after that. And then when the founder retired in 2009, um, she asked me to chair a committee of musicians to kind of run the artistic side of the festival. So I started that in 2009 and my, our first festival was in 2011. And then in 2016, um, after you know our little committee had grown the festival significantly, you know we had appeared on the cover of Symphony Magazine and all that kind of stuff. In 2016, um, it became a full-time position. And so I was able to do Gateways full-time in 2016. But I've been involved nice. with the organization since 1995. Yeah. That's and can awesome. I say our website is um, uh, gatewaysmusicfestival.org, and there are recordings there and, and videos. Um, and to, so to see a hundred and something black folks up on the stage playing Brahms, playing Tchaikovsky, playing modern black composers is really powerful. It, it should be seen. So um, I hope your listeners can go listen to some of it. Yeah, and we'll include that website link in the oh, show cool. notes too, so oh, cool. people will connect us in. Um, What's funny is how our worlds, your world of gateways, sort of interacted with one of my Howard alumnus. I don't know if you know Ariel Davis. Um, she she knows you. Let me tell you that. What is she? She's know? with. She's with. Um, the Kennedy Center as but program manager. She's a, she's a French horn player, but her, but I don't know her name as Davis. So what's oh, her? Oh yeah. She just recently <laughs> married. Ooh, her maiden name. Uh, I know name. Ariel. I Ariel. do know her. Yeah, yeah, I do. And she's a French horn player. Yeah. French yeah, horn. Yeah. yeah. She's amazing. I love her, <laughs> but I can't call uh, her last got, name right now. Yeah. So her, her new, her newer last name is Davis. I don't uh -huh. know what her maiden last name. I didn't know that. Um, I, I can't remember it right now. Um, but yeah, she we she'll be on um, earlier in this month on the same series I'm kind of doing during Black History Month. She we were talking and sort of this whole thing. I was like, I wonder if I was kind of like, I wonder if you know my cousin. She was like, <laughs> Lee is your cousin. I said, yeah. I, I sort of forget like how fabulous my family is. Not no well, like it, but i'm the exception i'm not fabulous but thank you <laughs> oh please please she was like lee is amazing he came to do a presentation about the importance of this is how you then diversify your 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 orchestras and da 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 da, da. she was like i can't believe that's your cousin she was just so like oh, that's sweet i was like oh yeah so when you hear our episode in the uh, earlier i think it's going to be first week of february oh good it was ariel shelton Shelton, that's what it yeah, her main that's name right. was. That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, she's terrific. Yeah. She was like so excited. She was like, I can't believe that's your cousin. That's so amazing. Da, 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 da. She oh, was very so excited cool. about it. That's cool. Yeah. Well, when you talk with her, please let tell her I said hello. I sure will. I sure will. But yeah, she was talking about um, I guess some sort of presentation you did um about the importance of a uh, maybe diversity in 
in the music spaces? Mm. Is that something not, you do more regularly or that was just I, a one-off sort of thing? I do or? them a lot, and but I've seen Ariel on lots of different occasions for lots of different things at conferences and stuff like that. So she's very involved in the field and very engaged. Um, but yeah, I, I used to talk a lot on diversity panels and stuff like that. And the last three or four years I've stopped um, because um, I'm exhausted from it. Um, the progress has been very, very slow, you know, since I started in the field in the 1990s. Um, and it's something that black people get called upon to do that our white peers are not. It's expected that we'll spend our efforts and energy on making their worlds more diverse. And so I stopped um, and I, I became more committed to not doing that through my work at Gateways. We believe that diversity is important. It is not our mission. And the Gateways musicians did a, philo a philosophy statement, um, which I would love to, to read to you, um, mm -hmm. which just the, just the very, very, very last, um, uh, last part of it, which, which kind of speaks to this. It says, we support many of the classical music field's efforts to be more inclusive and specifically to increase the participation of musicians of African descent, but affirm that the festival does not exist solely to identify a solution to a problem that we did not create. There it is. Three snaps and Z formation on that one. Just, there it is. There it is. It, I agree. It takes so much time, so much effort, so much energy. We can't even fix it, Monique. It it's is not, not on us problem. to fix. It's not on us to fix it. But it we didn't create it. We're not going to fix it. Exactly. It, 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 it just zaps everything from us having to deal with it. And so three or four years ago, I decided that, you know what? This is not my work. This is somebody else's work. It's not my work. Um, and, and when I see white folks in our field as committed and as involved in creating diversity, and removing these obstacle, obstacles that exist in the field, then I might want to be involved. But they have to get as committed and as involved in this work as all of us are. So yeah. I don't do it anymore. <laughs> That's fine. No, yeah. absolutely. I I, agree. I hear you. Um, I And Ariel spoke to sort of the same thing, and you'll hear it in their episode mm. in the first week, um, about, you know, there have been people, there are people who are doing the work within kind of the fine arts yeah. and, and orchestra fields trying to diversify, uh, white people that is. Um, but there are lots that have not done anything. Right. And sort of we talked a bit about the idea of the Sankofa mindset of trying to do that and making those spaces in that way of the reaching back, Sankofa being a, a Guyanese, I think, word um, mm. is the idea of uh, like going back and grabbing previous, the future generations and bringing them forward, right? Like you mm -hmm. become mm -hmm. sort of that that lamplight level and, and light the way. And then you go back and make an intentional effort to bring the other generations with you. So yeah. I think, yeah, so, so, so well, important. And in, in our field, um, you know, I, I gave a, a talk at a couple of years ago at the Kennedy Center for a conference that they were having. 
and it was entitled something like you know um, you know five ways to not have the same conversations about diversity equity inclusion and inclusion uh, in classical music 20 years from now because we've been having these same conversations and, and what it is it's talk 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 to the point that folks believe that that's the work mm-hmm the talking about it is not the work. It's a part of the work. Yep. It's not the work. Not the work. And so it's it's been the substitute for actually making change. That's why there's been so little change. Mm-hmm. So the difficult stuff can't do that. But we can talk about it ad nauseum. I'm sick of talking about it ad nauseum. I'm sick. laughing because it's so true. Same yeah. thing even um on my one of my COVID series episodes I had. Your our cousin, your your cousin, uh, Dr. Sabrina Bent. Sabrina, on, yeah, yeah. And she was talking about I was on his, she, you know, board certified <laughs> anesthesiology. She's like, I'm on a call with my medical school, and they've been talking. You know, when I went to medical school, and I'm gonna have to go back and I may have to correct this in the in the edit. I forget the exact X percentage. Let's leave it mm. was the number of uh, African Americans and Black women at that medical school. Then when I was in school. What's the number? Same percentage today. That's right. That's right. So, and they've been working on, working on diversity, equity, inclusion. Talk, talk, talking. talk, 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 talk. It's like and okay, yeah. Classical music the same. One point eight percent of players in American symphony orchestras are people who identify as being of African descent. One point eight percent. It's been that for the last thirty years, not changing. That said. There is a pipeline or pathway matter issue related to classical music because um, in order to become, you know, a great violinist, those kids are starting at six, seven and eight years old. And so until we can have access to uh, instrumental music instruction um, for young kids at the very beginning and our black kids, the the stats are not going to change. They'll stay the same. And yep. and so what happens is the kids that get access are the black kids who are from families of privilege, um, which is a small number of folks. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Because there was a time when classical music was a language that the black community was familiar with. Um, you know, in our black churches, people sang actually from hymnals. They had musicians who could actually read the music in the hymnals and play pipe organs. And, um, you know, I grew up in Chicago. There were there were orchestras on the south side. There were chamber music groups on the south side. Almost every kid well, in Chicago in the 1960s when I was in school, every kid um, got a musical instrument in third grade. Had to learn how to play a musical instrument. Well, that doesn't exist anymore. And so more and more over the decades, this this concept of classical music has become a foreign language in the black community. And it didn't used to be that. It didn't used to be that way. Um, so there's a there's definitely a pathway. We've got to find a way to get more kids. And if that's the conversation, I want to be involved in that conversation. And it's not just a select group of kids. It's giving all kids the opportunity and access because you never know who's going to be the ne- next Mozart. You don't never know who's going to be the next George Walker. So every kid needs to be given the opportunity. So mm-hmm. absolutely. 
<sighs> this was a very fruitful conversation. It's been so not much fun talking to you. Not when we sat down. So fun. We have and, to do this more often. I know. And you have to come I visit me in New York again. Yeah, Christian, Christian have to come and I to New have York. talked about it. We yeah. have talked about it. When this, You're on the list of when things Yay. open up. You're early on the list. Yay. Um, I think we're going to hit D.C. We're going to sort of do like we did before. Because Christian's actually never been to Washington, D.C. Oh, no kidding. Now's yeah. the time to go. Now that now that crazy is out the house, I might want to go do a White House tour. I just feel like I was like so pre COVID. I was like, I want to go to DC, but that man's in the office, and I I don't feel right going to the nation's capital and giving him any of my money. I know. So, but now he's out. Well, you know your your uh, family, your your mother and her uh, sisters and brothers, your. Your grandfather, grandmother lived in the D.C. area, you know, when we were all growing up. So yeah. we went there for vacation every once in a while. And Washington, D.C. is one of the world's great cities. Oh, yeah. So I Kristen has to see it. He's got to go. I know. I was surprised because, I mean, one, growing up there, like I said, born in Northern yep, Virginia. Yep, so yep. that was like the anytime anybody came in town, it's like, okay, let's go yep, to D.C., yep, let's yep, do yep, the monuments, yep. do all the things. So we did it in the school trips and all the things. Of course. And then even when I was in high school in New Orleans, we did a, a, a trip to Washington, close up Washington. So you go and visit mm-hmm. your, your senators and there's a couple oh, of like leadership wow. type courses and stuff and, and sort of big. And it was a big to do. It was a large org. Was it people from like Montana? Utah people from all over all over the U.S. would be part of it. People from actually we had some people from Puerto Rico, all just all all the things, and so that was really cool. And then going to Howard again, so D.C. is all also mm-hmm, super mm-hmm. part of. I loved it when I was in school. D.C. is a course. great college town too, yes, it because it's really yes, it it's really easy to get around. I didn't have a car all four years, but it was because of the transit is really nice. And there's a lot um, of co- other college students there too. Correct, you know, Georgetown, Georgetown, American, yeah. American. All that. That's right. Yep. So it's a, George Washington. And, all and over that. the years that I've you know been going there for like I used to do a lot of work with the National Endowment for the Arts. I've seen the city become more and more. Well, it's become unaffordable for Black folks, pretty much. Like mm-hmm. it's just a very unaffordable. But the city you know, the kind of touristy areas and stuff like that have become more and more, I don't know. Um, I don't want it, to, it, it's a, it's a world-class city in a way that it wasn't, you know, 50 years ago, it was a sleepy town almost. Now mm-hmm. it's a world-class city. I mean, very big, just, big branded. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it, and it, 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 Seems now fitting for this nation's capital. But when I was a kid, I think this is like a home because I was coming from Chicago. Right. This is like a little podunk town. But now (laughs) D.C. is a big deal. Yeah. 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 And we'll have to save the gentrification discussion for another time because that's the whole thing. Well, you got it going on in New Orleans, too. New Orleans, too. Right. Oh, oh, (laughs) post-Katrina. Yes. Post-Katrina has been... The, the prices have gone up astronomically, and as we mm-hmm. know, salaries and wages have not, have not to keep up anywhere close. And, you know, people from the New Yorks and Chicago's and California's who fell in love with the city and decide, oh, I can live here for way t- expensive yeah. for the people who live there who are from there, but way cheaper than the Bay Area or wherever they're yeah. coming from. So there's a lot of that happening. 
Mm -hmm. Um, And there's an interesting cultural discussion that goes on in there because they fell in love with the things of the city, but then want to change them. Like (laughs) no music after a certain time. I moved to the French Quarter, but I don't want to hear music in the middle of the night. Right. Yeah. What? Yeah. Sir, madam. That's you. You moved to the wrong part. I mean, there's suburban areas in still the city. Mm -hmm. If you're living in the French Quarter off of Bourbon Street, off of, you know, these main thoroughfares, this is what you get. That's right. That's right. It's like if you live in, shoot, where you live in Harlem at <laughs> on a Tuesday night, it might be popping. That's just be. what it is. That's right. I, we, we learned but that. I can, sleep, I can sleep through anything in Harlem, though. You can. bothers me now. <laughs> oh, let me tell you, because when we stayed with you that one night, they was, they was, it was going down. It was a Tuesday. There was no holiday. It was, it was just... 2 a.m. People are like That's just hot, a right? lot of city noise. It's just like, oh, we're in the city. That's yep. to be expected. So. Yep. That's a that's a that's a talk for a whole nother day yes, um outside of oh, me back again. Thank I you. Oh, I'll have you back again. for sure as many times <laughs> as you'll have us. Yeah. Um thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. It's going to be a fantastic episode when I Yay. edit it. Yay. Thanks so much. It's great talking to you and great seeing you. Yeah. Absolutely. Great, great talking to you, too. Thanks again to Lee for coming on the podcast and wonderful, great, deep conversations on a host of issues and topics that really affect a variety of people, especially in the African-American experience. So thank you again for your candid conversation. As always, check out the show notes. Lots of great links to some of the things we talked about. So yeah, check it out and make sure to support Gateways and other similar endeavors. Gateways Music Festival, the sh- the link to their site and even a direct link to donate um, or even just get some Gateways gear. I have a Gateways t- Music Festival t-shirt, lots of good fun gear out there. So definitely check them out. Uh, share this podcast, of course, with your friends and even your enemies. Uh, we're available on all your major platforms. The best way to find us is go to our website at thevictorypodcast.com. And on there, you can go to the episode player and send someone the link just to this episode and they can listen straight from our website. Or you can check out our where to listen page where you can find us across many of their, your various platforms. On that page, you just kind of click your favorite platform and it'll take you straight to um, how to subscribe there. Also, if you'd like to support the Victory Podcast, you can check out our merch and Patreon page. We'll be adding some new content uh, in next month, um, exclusive to Patreon. So be sure to subscribe there to one of the different levels. And you also get um, some exclusive gear as well. Or if you just want to buy some regular uh, Victory Podcast gear, you can also find that on that same page at our t-shirt shop on Tier Public. So I'll end this episode as I do every episode. Every problem has a solution. It's whether you're willing to do the work to find it. Let's do the work and be victorious.